be seated. I invite you to take your copy of scripture this morning and turn to Psalm 93. Psalm 93. And uh, this is the second Sunday. I'm back after a summer sabbatical and it is, I'll say again, good to be back. Good to be with you. Uh, as you're turning to Psalm 93, I want to remind you that our mission statement is to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy live and proclaim the gospel. And currently we are focusing on the theme of enjoying the gospel. We're doing so as we're walking through a series in the Psalms. Uh, this week we're going to give our attention to Psalm 93. Uh, but it's important for us to know as we read this Psalm that we are in a section of the Psalms uh, in which there are a number of Psalms that speak of God as King. And so Psalm 93, along with Psalms 95 to 99, are classified as kingship psalms because they rejoice. They rejoice in the reality that God is king. They declare God to be king. And so even with our psalm this morning, you will notice that it begins with the declaration, the Lord reigns, the Lord reigns. And so let's look at Psalm 93. I'll read it in its entirety. And then we'll consider what God has to say to us from his word. So Psalm 93, beginning in verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Amen. Well, this current series that we're in in the Psalms began last week when we looked at Psalm 92. And you might remember that Psalm 92 is entitled, and if you don't remember this, you can just look back. Uh, Psalm 92 is entitled, A Song for the Sabbath. So it's a psalm that is to be recited, it is to be sung on the Sabbath day when God's people gather together for worship. And at the heart of Psalm 92 is a truth that is at the heart of Christian worship. If you look back in Psalm 92, verse 8, you see there the psalmist states, But you, O Lord, are on high forever. In other words, God is on high. He is sovereign. He rules. He reigns. This truth we saw last week is at the heart of Christian worship. Well, now as we move into Psalm 93, the psalmist is going to develop this theme. In Psalm 93, the psalmist rejoices, he delights in God's sovereign rule and reign. And in particular, the psalmist in Psalm 93 declares that God is to be praised because He is the King who rules over all creation. So this is what we want to see in Psalm 93 this morning. That God is to be praised because He is the King who rules and reigns over all creation. Now you might be asking this morning, well, why should I care that God is sovereign? Why should I care that God is king over the natural world? 
Well, let me just briefly mention two reasons, and then we'll begin to look at our verses this morning. First, in John Piper's book entitled Providence, Piper makes the point that the natural world we live in contains many threats to our general safety and well-being. I mean, just think about it for a moment. There are physical ailments like viruses and infections and diseases. We can think of things like malaria and cancer, aneurysms and heart attacks, autoimmune disorders, and we could go on and on. In addition, there are natural disasters that threaten our safety and well-being, like violent storms and floods and earthquakes and tornadoes and freak accidents. And so, if we are to live in this world by faith and with a certain sense of peace and calm, if we are to live in this world that is rife with threats, then it is vital that we understand who rules and reigns over the natural world. That's the first reason why we should be concerned, why we should take great interest in the fact that God is the king who rules over all creation. Because we live in a world that is full of potential threats. And we need to know who rules and reigns over this world. The second reason is because Jesus teaches us that through our observations of nature, we can learn more about who God is and how He cares for His children. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 6, Verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, And why are you anxious about clothing? So why are you worried about what you're going to wear? And Jesus says, Consider the lilies of the field. So he points those who are listening to him to the lilies of the field. And he says, Consider how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So Jesus says, why are you worried about, about what you're going to wear? And then he points them to nature. He points them to the lilies of the field. And he shows them something about the lilies of the field, that they're beautiful even though they don't toil or spin. And then he draws this conclusion, this application. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So the second reason why we should be concerned that God is sovereign over creation, that He reigns over the natural world, is because it's through observing creation and God's activity in creation that we learn more about who He is and how He cares for us, His children. With this in mind, I want us to consider our psalm this morning in three parts. First of all, we will consider in verses 1 and 2 a reigning king. Secondly, we will consider in verses 3 and 4 a mighty king. And then third and finally in verse 5, a trustworthy king. So a reigning king, a mighty king, and a trustworthy king. Look there in verses 1 and 2. The psalmist writes, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength at His belt. Yes, the world is established, shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. So in verses 1 and 2 here, we see that the psalmist declares the majestic, strong, eternal, 
king has fixed and established the world in its place. Notice there in verse 1, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. So the Hebrew word for majesty seems to connote the idea of being lifted up, of being kingly. And here the psalmist says that the Lord is robed in majesty. We could imagine the king of England or queen of England robed in all their official regalia. And here the psalmist says that the Lord, the God of Israel, robes himself in majesty. And then he goes on to say the Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. The ESV translation here, he has put on strength as his belt, reminds me of the boxing heavyweight champion of the world, right? And he has the title belt around his waist. And it's a symbol of his strength, of his dominion, of his victory. The Lord has put on a belt of strength. And the idea here is that God's majesty is not merely symbolic. God's majesty is not a front when he robes himself in majesty. You know, sometimes leaders of weak nations will parade around in great pomp to portray themselves as majestic, but to portray themselves as formidable. But everyone knows it's just a show. It's not real. It's just grandstanding because in reality, their government, their nation, their authority is weak. But here the psalmist is saying that God is truly majestic. When he robes himself in majesty, it's not merely a front. God is authentically and undeniably strong. In fact, he is majestically strong. Matthew Henry, the commentator, writes, quote, The majesty of earthly princes compared with God's terrible majesty is but like the glimmerings of a glowworm compared with the brightness of the sun when it goes forth in its strength. Are the enemies of God's kingdom great and formidable? Yet let us not fear them, for God's majesty will eclipse, their, will eclipse theirs. End of quote. And notice, after the psalmist declares the majestic strength of the Lord, notice then in verses 1 and 2, he goes on to say, Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. So here the psalmist declares that God's majestic strength accounts for the establishment, the fixedness, the stability of the earth. You see the connection there. In verse 1, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. And then the very next thing he says, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. So if we're following his logic, we're following the flow of thought, what the psalmist is intending to communicate here is that it is by the majestic strength of God that the world is established. And then he goes on to make the point again. So at the end of verse 1, he says, Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. And then verse 2, Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. So we can ask again, Why is the earth established? 
Initially, the psalmist says, because of God's majestic strength. Now, he says, it's because the throne of God is established. God has established his throne. And because he reigns in eternal majestic strength from his throne, which is established forever, he has declared that the world would be established and fixed and stable. Now, this is interesting because one of the things that the psalmist is teaching us here is that we should not take for granted the stability of the earth. You know, there are many things in this life that are constantly changing and in flux. But the existence and preservation of the earth is not one of them. And the psalmist says, for this, we should praise God. In fact, historically, this has been the basis, this has been considered the basis for science. The conviction that there is an eternal God who has created the world and he has established fixed, predictable, unchangeable laws of nature. And these fixed, predictable, unchangeable laws of nature are the basis upon which scientific inquiry and experimentation are possible. So, we can be assured that the same processes under the same conditions in the same context will result in the same outcomes. And we should praise God for that. We should praise God that He has he fixed the world and He has established predictable laws of nature by which we can live and function. Many of you are aware that Elon Musk was the uh, modern, famous inventor and entrepreneur. He has hopes to take humanity to Mars. And his desire is that if we are able to arrive at Mars, that we would create colonies and communities where humanity could live. And Musk desires to colonize Mars because he is fearful that this earth will ultimately be destroyed and will no longer exist. And if humanity is to continue on and perpetuate, then we must find another planet to live on. Now, whether or not you buy into Musk's theory, it does give us reason to pause and to consider why for all of these millennia has the world not been destroyed? Why is the earth not imploded in on itself? Why has the earth maintained the precise conditions to allow for human life to exist and to flourish? And the psalmist declares here that it is a consequence of God's majestic, strong, sovereign rule and reign. And we should be thankful and praise Him for it. Charles Spurgeon stated, quote, that there is any stability in the world is the Lord's doing, and he is to be adored for it, end of quote. And here in our psalm, the psalmist declares that just like God's throne is eternal, God has determined that the earth will be established and not moved. The Bible teaches us that there is coming a day of judgment. It will be day of fire, fiery judgment. And we don't know 
how much of the earth will be scorched. We don't know how much of the earth might be destroyed when God brings His judgment upon the earth. But in the end, the Scriptures tell us that God will preserve the earth. And one day, He will in fact refashion it and remake it so that there will be a new heavens and a new earth and He will dwell on this new earth as God's people with Him in perfect peace and joy forever. So this is what the psalmist declares to us in this psalm, in these opening verses. That God is the reigning sovereign king who has established his throne and has decreed and declared that the earth itself would be established and fixed and stable. And so what, what can we learn from this truth about how God relates to us as children? There's many, many things we can say. But perhaps just consider this this morning. I am sure that there are some of you here this morning who have grown up or perhaps are currently living in a chaotic home situation. And you, as a result, are all the more eager to create some kind of control in your life. Perhaps you attempt to create very controlled environments in which to live and so you tightly schedule your day and you're always punctual and you're meticulously neat. And nothing's wrong with any of those things. But perhaps you pursue those things because underneath this unsettledness and this desire to, to, to grasp some type of control in the midst of a chaotic, unsettling life. But of course, in our more honest moments, we recognize that we are very limited in our ability to control our own lives. And we are especially limited in our ability to control outward forces, even natural forces that would threaten stability and peace and calm that we long for. But God, who is majestic and who is strong, who eternally rules and reigns on His throne, is able to provide a peace and a stability in our lives that we can never finally orchestrate ourselves. Listen to the testimony of the psalmist himself. In Psalm 16, verse 8, actually look here in verse 1 of Psalm 93. It says, The Lord reigns, He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, He has put on strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. And it shall never be moved because the Lord has decreed it and He's sovereign and He reigns and He rules and He's mighty. And now listen to the testimony of the psalmist in Psalm 16.8. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I shall not be moved. Or Psalm 21, verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord, and, though this, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Or Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Or Psalm 66, verse 2 6. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. 
Or Psalm 112, verse 6, For the righteous shall never be moved. He will, rem he will be remembered forever. Or Psalm 125, verse 1, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Because the Lord is the sovereign Lord who reigns with strength and might and His throne is established forever, we as His children can be confident that when we face the trials and difficulties of life, He will sustain us. He will provide for us. He will provide a security to preserve us and keep us so that we are not finally moved or shaken or destroyed. Second, consider this truth, a mighty king. So first of all, we see in verses 1 and 2, a reigning king. Look there in verses 3 and 4, and we see a mighty king. The psalmist writes, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. So in these verses, the psalmist declares that the Lord is mightier than the floods. He's mightier than the mighty waters. He's mightier than the waves of the sea. And notice the floods here are mentioned three times in verse 3. The floods, the floods, the floods. And then the psalmist in verse 4 mentions the many waters and the waves of the sea. Also notice in verse 2 that the psalmist declares three times... He declares three times that the floods are lifted up. The floods are lifted up, O Lord. The floods are, have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Now some have suggested here that what the psalmist is trying to convey is that the floods are lifting up their voices in praise to the Lord. Sometimes we see that in the psalms, that the, uh, God's creation is lifting up their voice in praise to God. But it's also possible that the psalmist here, in using this threefold lift up, lift up, lift up, that he is marking the ever-increasing rise of the waters as the flood lifts higher and higher and higher. And I think this gets more at the psalmist's intent. Because in the ancient Near East, the waters, and in particular the sea, was symbolic of uncontrolled chaos. And here it seems that the psalmist is describing the waters, the seas, as restless and violent and tumultuous. Note also the emphasis on the sound of the waters in verses 3 and 4. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. There it is. The floods have lifted up their roaring like a lion. Mightier than the thunders, there it is again, of many waters. We know that water can produce a quiet trickle, right? And it can also produce a deafening roar. Some claim that it's not unusual to be able to hear the roar of the Niagara Falls from some 30 to 35 miles away. That's incredible, isn't it? 
Have you ever stood in the waves at the beach with a friend or a family member and the waves are getting bigger and they're, they're coming, they're hitting you and hitting you and you're trying to talk to the person right next to you, but you have to raise your voice, almost yell, and maybe still it's hard to hear because the water is so loud as it comes crashing in on you? And notice that the psalmist draws attention to the sound of the water in order to stress the might and the strength and the power of water. Look there in verse 4. Mightier than the thunder of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. I'm going to maybe give away my age here a little bit, but I still remember the Indian Ocean's Sorry, I think I covered my mic when I did that. The Indian Ocean Tsunami of 2004. Some of y'all remember that? On Sunday, December 26, 2004, there was an earthquake that registered 9.1 that took place on the floor, of the, on the ocean floor. And that 9.1 earthquake ruptured the ocean floor in a span that, that went 900 miles across. And when that took place on the ocean floor, that rupture took place on the ocean floor, there was this enormous amount of energy that swelled up to the surface of the ocean, creating waves that were 100 feet tall and we're moving across the Indian Ocean at 500 miles per hour. And when those waves hit the shore, it was absolute devastation. Cities and towns were completely destroyed. Some 230,000 people died. And do you understand now do you understand why the ancients considered the sea be an uncontrolled, untamed world that is to be feared? And the psalmist here draws attention to the sound and the might and the strength of the waters in order that he might declare, Yahweh, the Lord, is mightier still. Do you see it there in the text, verse 4? Mightier than the thunder of the waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And notice what the psalmist has done here. This truth that he is proclaiming, the Lord on high is mighty, is the same truth we saw last week in Psalm 92 that is the heart of Christian worship. In Psalm 92, verse 8, but you, O oh Lord, here it is again, are on high forever. This is why we worship God. Because He's on high and He's sovereign and He rules and He reigns. And the psalmist in Psalm 93 is especially intent to communicate this idea that God, not only does He rule and reign over all creation, in particular, He rules and reigns over the unruly, tumultuous, chaotic waters of the sea. He is mightier still, and we should praise Him and rejoice in Him. Of course, in the Old Testament, there are two powerful, redemptive illustrations of God's might over the waters. The first is the flood. 
The Bible tells us that in response to the pervasive evilness of humanity, God sent a universal flood upon the earth. And all of humanity was destroyed except for Noah and his family. Because God guided an ark for Noah and his family. And when the flood came, God, by the might of his arm, protected Noah and his family from the raging waters and from the universal flood. Of course, the ark then would become a symbol and a type of the Lord Jesus. Because we are reminded that if we want to be saved from the waters of God's wrath and judgment, we must hide ourselves in the Lord Jesus like Noah hid himself in the ark. We must hide ourselves in the Lord Jesus who died on the cross and paid the full payment for our sins. And if we do so through faith in Jesus, God will forgive us and protect us and we will be saved and delivered from His wrath and judgment. Second powerful redemptive illustration of God's might over the waters in the Old Testament is the Exodus. You remember that God's people suffered under Egyptian bondage and slavery for some 400 years. And finally, God broke Pharaoh's will and he said that the people could be delivered. And so Israel is making their way out of Egypt. And they haven't traveled far and Pharaoh changes his mind. And Pharaoh, with his fierce army, begins to pursue the people of God. And the people of God are trapped because behind them is Pharaoh's fierce army and before them is the Red Sea, which they are unable to cross. And so what does God do? God, in His might, parts the sea. His people are able to walk through and the Egyptians attempt to follow. But by the time God's people are on the other side, the Lord, in His might, releases the waters. And they wash away and destroy the Egyptians. In all these ways, God is declaring and demonstrating that He is mighty. And that He is mighty over the waters of the earth. Matthew Henry, again, the commentator says, quote, The unlimited sovereignty and irresistible power of the great Jehovah are very encouraging to the people of God in reference to all the noises and hurries they are met with in this world. End of quote. And you see, the Bible teaches us that just like the lilies of the field, there's something to learn there, right? Just like God clothes the lilies of the field, He can clothe you and provide for you. And just like we saw in the opening verses of this psalm, just like God is rules and reigns on His throne and His throne is established forever, He can for His children cause them to not be moved and shaken and finally destroyed. And the Bible teaches us as well that because God rules and reigns over the untamed waters of this world, He also can control and calm the, we might say, metaphorical storms of our life. The sufferings, the trials, the difficulties that we face in this world. And isn't it true that like the mighty waters and seas of this earth, that our sorrows and troubles and difficulties that we experience in this life often seem chaotic, violent, out of control? 
And yet we were reminded in Scripture that God rules and reigns over the sorrows and sufferings in our life. That He directs the storm. That He, in fact, has a purpose for the wind and the rain. And in His might, He is able to calm and still the waters of our life. The old German hymn, Be Still My Soul, states it this way. Be still my soul, your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All all mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and the wind still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. God is a reigning king, is a mighty king. And then third and finally, let's consider that the truth that God is a trustworthy king. He is a trustworthy king. Look there in verse 5. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. So we see here your decrees are trustworthy. And that word translated decrees there refers to God's commands, His testimonies, His statutes. And of course, we, along with the psalmist, can confidently assert that God's revealed word, in particular the scriptures, are trustworthy, they're reliable, they're faithful, they're enduring. But I wonder if in the context of this psalm, the author is thinking of God's decrees as it relates to his sovereign rule over the waters. Because in verses 3 and 4, he's speaking of the mighty waters and how they roar and how they thunder. And then in verse 5, immediately following that, he says, Your decrees are trustworthy. One commentator states it this way, Quote, Yahweh, that is the Lord, He does not act violently to subdue the forcefulness of the waves. God simply issues a decree. End of quote. And so we might ask ourselves, like, why is it that the waters of the earth don't swallow up the land and cover the earth as a whole? There's movies like that, right? Movies that try to play that out. What would that look like? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, we read, And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Why don't the water swallow up the earth? Because God has decreed that the waters would have a boundary and they would go no further. Or why has the world not experienced another worldwide flood resulting in the destruction of all humanity? Well, after God delivered Noah and his family from the flood, he made a covenant with Noah. And in Genesis chapter 9, verse 11, the Lord said, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. In other words, God decreed it, and His Word is trustworthy, it is faithful, it is true. 
So God rules and reigns over creation. In particular, he rules and reigns over the turbulent waters and seas of the earth. And he does so by his word, by the certainty of his decree. And then finally, the psalmist proclaims at the end of verse 5, Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. When the word holy is used in the Bible, it speaks of something that is distinct, that is set apart. And if we are to look at the psalm as a whole, as the psalmist is coming to a conclusion now in this psalm, we see that the psalmist worships God because God is set apart. He is holy. And He is set apart and holy in His majesty, in His strength, in His eternality, in His might, in His certainty, in His trustworthiness, in His faithfulness. In all these things, there is no one like Him. Holiness befits His house forevermore. This is a beautiful description of Yahweh, the God of Israel, who rules and reigns over creation. But before we conclude, I want to just point out one more truth. This idea that God is praised because He is King and rules over creation and over the waters of the earth is not just reason to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, but it is also reason to worship God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me, let's consider this just for a few moments. If you consider not Psalm 93 as a whole, you'll recognize that there's an interesting dynamic taking place in Psalm 93. So notice this as, as we flow through the psalm as a whole. In verses 1 and 2, God is presented as unchanging, immutable. His throne is fixed and established. And the earth as a result is fixed and established. Now we go into verses 3 and 4. And as we move into 3 and 4, God's creation, in particular the waters and the waves and the seas, are not fixed. They are not established. Rather, they seem to be ever-changing and in flux, chaotic. And then we come to verse 5, and we see that God rules over those chaotic waters through His decree and the power of His Word. James Boyce, speaking of this dynamic taking place in Psalm 93, says that, quote, it's a way of acknowledging that the world of nature is indeed in constant turmoil, but God is sovereign even over this change, end of quote. And actually what the psalmist is addressing here is the great question that hundreds of years later the Greek philosophers would wrestle with. How can the universe be characterized both by structure and order and constant change at the same time? Structure and order and constant change. How's that always happening at the same time? And the Greeks' answer was the Logos. The Logos referred to a universal principle that governed all things, made sense of all reality. But for the Greeks, this Logos was mysterious and it was impersonal. It was a law, it was a principle, it was a force. And the Apostle John challenged the Greeks' understanding of the Logos when he wrote 
in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Logos, we translate it word. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So you notice here, just in these three verses, John is pointing out the fact this Logos is, it's not impersonal, it's not a force, it's a person. In him, all things were created. And of course, John would go on to reveal that he's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. That through the Lord Jesus, God created all things. And then the rest of Scripture testifies to this truth. So in Colossians 1, 15-17, the Apostle Paul writes, He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So not only is it through the Son that God created the world, but He holds it all together through the Son. The Son is ruling, reigning, governing over all creation. The author of Hebrews says the same thing in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. But in these last days, He, that is God the Father, has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He, that is the Son, upholds the universe by the power of His Word. By His decree, He upholds the universe. So through the Son, God has created all things, and the Son governs and rules over all creation. And consider this. When the Son took on flesh and dwelt among us, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, was intentional to make this truth clear by demonstrating His power over the mighty waters. What was Jesus' first miracle, according to the Apostle John? He turned the water into wine. Changing the properties of water, making it into wine. And when Jesus' disciples were ahead of him in the boat at night, Jesus was going to catch up with them. How did Jesus catch up with them? He walked on the water, exercising his dominion over the chaotic, untamed seas. And when Jesus was asleep in the bottom of the boat, and a fierce storm came, and the disciples who were on the deck of the boat feared for their lives and thought they were going to die. What did Jesus do? He stood up on this deck of the boat and he said two words. Peace, be still. And by his decree, waters were calm. And do you remember the disciples' response? Who is this that even the waves and the sea obey Him. And of course the answer is, He is God in the flesh. 
Jesus is the incarnation of Yahweh in Psalm 93. He is the incarnation of the reigning, mighty, trustworthy King. And He rules over all creation, and in particular, over the mighty waters. And therefore, we are to worship Him. And therefore, we can trust Him. He is Lord. Let's pray. So we bow before you now and we worship you because you are the creator God who rules and reigns over all things. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus who demonstrated his great power over creation by his acts and miracles, by the various ways that he demonstrated his power over the waters. Father, we pray that as the psalmist demonstrates for us here that we would worship you as creator God. And Lord, we pray that as we consider your great might and power, we would take hope in the fact that you use that great might and power to care for us, your children. And may we trust you all the more. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.